0: Let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 8, 1 Kings 8. We'll be spending our time in that part of the Bible and this part of our worship, 1 Kings chapter 8. going to start just a little bit before that at the end of chapter 7. I wanted to uh, let you guys know that um, I am teaching in the back in this next uh, session, and uh, since uh, we had some some shifts and some changes. I didn't know what I was going to be teaching until, oh, I don't know, Wednesday, Thursday, something like that. And uh, so I just wanted to let you know so that I can take as many sheep from Don Chrysler as possible since Don is teaching in here. Um, But uh, we're going to be studying, uh, I'm calling it a theology of money, and we're going to talk about money for the entire quarter. And uh, so we're going to start that this morning and go on Sunday mornings in the back uh, studying about money. So we'll just see who you love more. Me or Brother Don, based on where you come in here or in there. No, I'm just teasing, but I wanted to let you know about that. So that's what we'll be doing after, uh, after this session back there. Um, so 1 Kings chapter 7 and verse 51, the end of chapter 7 uh, and the beginning of chapter 8. 1 Kings 7 and verse 51 says, Thus all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the vessels, and stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. So this is a remarkably important event in the history of Israel. The temple is finally prepared. Up to this point, all the special acts of corporate worship and formal worship that had happened in Israel had happened in the tabernacle, which was a tent. And so it was in a way symbolic of the idea that always God's people were moving. They were living in tents in the desert. They've come into the promised land. They've been in the promised land for several centuries by the time this is written. And yet, there is still this problem that God's house or God's place is still a tent. And so it it seems particularly poignant to David as David builds a palace. As David has conquered Jerusalem and he has built a palace for himself in Jerusalem... ...that David decides this just doesn't seem right. And so David says, it says, when the king had lived in his house... ...and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies... ...the king, that's King David, said to Nathan the prophet... ...see now I dwell in a house of cedar... But the ark of God dwells in a tent. And so David has the idea he wants to build a house for God. A house implying permanence where a tent implies that sort of transient life. So God doesn't allow David to build that temple. But instead he says, your son Solomon or your son will build this temple and will build a house for the Lord. And so David prepares all the materials so that Solomon is ready. And when Solomon comes of age... And becomes king, Solomon builds the temple. And here we read that all the work that King Solomon did is finished. And so there is a great ceremony. Look with me in First Kings chapter eight and verse one. First Kings eight and verse one. And Solomon assembled the elders of Israel, and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon and Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And the elders, all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up, and King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, when the, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud... And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand the minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So you see there's this, this description of a great ceremony where the ark is brought in in a formal way into the temple. It's sort of the inauguration of the temple. And, of course, the ark and the mercy seat, all of this representing God's presence. This is where God is going to be and God is going to live. So we're, we're entering a new chapter in Israel's history, but the questions still remain I think the big question that comes when you say God is going to live in a house, the question is, is that really true? I mean, does God really live in a house? Did God really inhabit the temple? And I think that's a question that is going to be raised, even among the people of Israel, about how they understand the temple and what it's supposed to be. How does a temple work? How does that happen where God is going to be in a certain place? And what's the point of all of this? So, I want to take some time this morning and I want to look at what's going to happen in 1 Kings chapter 8, because what happens next is that Solomon prays one of the most beautiful and powerful prayers that has ever been prayed. And it is a prayer, we might call it, of dedication of the temple. But as we do that, we learn something about how we're supposed to understand the temple. And here is what I want you to get. As we understand the temple, we understand some things about God that haven't changed, now, we don't worship God in the same kind of way that the Jews did in, t- in terms of a temple in Jerusalem. However, I think you'll see that as we look at what God is like and how God wants them to understand the temple, we can look at how God wants us to understand him today. So we're going to call this, here in heaven, th- the theology of the temple. What does the temple say about God? So let's start just by reading here, 1 Kings chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, where Solomon begins to pray. It says, 1 Kings 8 and verse 12, "...then Solomon said, "'The Lord has said that He would dwell in thick darkness. "'I have indeed built you an exalted house, "'a place for you to dwell in forever. "'Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel "'while the assembly of Israel stood.' And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying, Since the day that I brought out my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that, that, that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled the promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So the first thing that we need to see about the temple is this idea that Jehovah keeps his word. So you see that in what Solomon is saying. He is, he's going back to say, when you see the temple, what you see is a visual representation of God fulfilling promises. And he goes through some of these ideas. Now he says, first of all, in verse 12, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness, which I think is a reference to the idea of God's presence and this cloud that we read about in verse 11 that has filled the temple, that God is going to have this certain kind of presence that the people have seen even when they were wandering in the desert. But there is also this sense that now that presence is here in the temple. So Solomon begins to recount as he thinks about where God's going to dwell. He recounts what God has done. Verse 15, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, with his hand is fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to my father David. So he said, I chose David to be over my people Israel. God promised that, but remember it was a long time before that was fulfilled, wasn't it? There's a long time between the time Samuel anointed David as king and David actually got to be king. And yet God brought that to pass. David wanted to build God a house. God said, no, you won't, but your son will. Guess what's happened? Just what God promised has now come to pass. And then verse 21, there is a covenant of the Lord and there's an ark of the covenant that is fulfilled, full of the promises that God made, the covenant God made to our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Did God said he was going to do it. And then God did it. God kept his word. Verse 22 now. Verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you. In heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand you have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. So he says, this is what God does. This is who you are. That's uh, verse uh, 23. There's no God like you keeping covenant, keeping your word, doing what you promised. This is the nature of God. So keep your word that you promised to my father. When you promised him, you would always have a man on the throne that the house of David would continue. He says, I'm asking you now, keep your word in that way as well. So what I want you to see here is that when they look at the temple, they are intended to see this is who God is and what God does. Particularly when God has settled down in a land, it is a fulfillment of the promise that God was going to give this land to Abraham and that God was going to give it to the descendants of Abraham as he has done. And now you know that that has come to pass because now God is living in the land. God has a house there. And of course, even when the temple is going to be destroyed that's still going to be God keeping his word because God's also promised if you abandon me and you forsake me, then I'm going to let other nations take you away. And so in every instance, everything that has to do with the temple has to do with God's trustworthiness. So let me just take a moment then and apply that in terms of New Testament Christianity because the idea of God keeping his word is vital for you and me. For one, we need to understand that this is a fact about God. In the New Testament, these kinds of statements are made. This is Titus 1 and verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So notice how the promise of eternal life, which is what you and I are waiting for, is now tied to God's trustworthiness. Because God can never lie and he's promised something, then we need to remember that so that we can hold on to that promise now. same kind of logic in Hebrews 6 and verse 17 and 18. I don't think this one has a pointer on it, does it? Huh? In the center? Oh, look at that. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So you have an idea that of a hope that's linked to God's trustworthiness. He has an oath and a promise, and so in these two unchangeable things... It's impossible for God to lie. God has sworn by himself, I'm, not, I'm going to keep my promise. And so we have strong consolation. But this is my favorite when you talk about God keeping his word. If we have died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure with him, we'll also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, it's the kind of thing that always set, sets me up for saying, if we're faithless, he'll be faithless. Well, that's not the way it works, is it? If we're faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. I love that because you get into the rhythm of the text and you think, okay, well, God's doing everything we do. But when we're faithless, God doesn't do what we do. He remains faithful. He's always going to be true to his word. He cannot deny himself. So Jehovah keeps his word, and it's essential that we know this about God. Please remember that when we say faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, this is the kind of thing we're talking about. That we learn to trust God as we see the way He acts and the things He said. That's the way trust works, isn't it? We talk about trust in our relationships. We learn to trust one another because we see the way people act and we see that they keep their word. And the more we get to know them, the more we learn we can trust them. They're safe, they're trustworthy. And in the same way, the more we learn of God and how God is promised and fulfilled and promised and fulfilled, we learn that we have promises that we are waiting on from God that we are certain are going to come to pass because that's in the nature of God. So when you look at the temple, think about God keeping his word. Second thing I want us to see is that when we look at the temple, we see that Jehovah hears his people. This is really the emphasis of all that Solomon is going to pray here. Look in chapter 8 of 1 Kings and verse 27. 1 Kings 8 and verse 27, he says, "...but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you to this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this place." The place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. So Solomon takes on, I mentioned there are some questions that come with the temple and Solomon takes one of those on in verse 27. He says, is God really going to live on the earth? That's not really where God lives. So how can this be? He said, heaven and the highest heaven can't contain you, much less this house that I built. This is not big enough for God. It's not grand enough for God. This is not really God's dwelling place. But what he is doing then is saying, this is a place in which or toward which we can call on you and know that you hear. And so the whole point of the temple, as Solomon is picturing it here, is to say, God, we need you to listen to us. And when we pray, hear in heaven. So God's still in heaven. He's hearing in heaven. It's not as if God's location or dwelling place has somehow changed. But the idea is when we pray toward this place, you hear in heaven. And so all of this, just look through it in verses 28 to 30 that we just read. How many times he says, hear or listen? Listening to the cry of your people in verse 28. And in verse 29, listen to the prayer your servant offers. Verse 30, listen, and when you listen, and when you hear, when you hear, over and over again, this is the focus. Jehovah, hear your people. The temple means God's listening. So, what Solomon does then is to keep going through different scenarios in which we need God to listen to us. Verse 31 now. Verse 31, if a man sins against his neighbor, and is made to take an oath, and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then here in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing the, his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. So the, the scenario he's describing here is when uh, it's a specific situation spelled out in Exodus where somebody is accused of stealing something and they have to come and swear an oath that says, I don't know anything about it. And so Solomon is saying, when they come to this place and swear an oath before you here in heaven, hear what they're doing, see, and then judge. If somebody is lying, let it be found out. Make sure that nobody's going to get away with anything before you. So, hear in heaven, and when you hear, judge according to what's what's righteous. Verse 33, when your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. So when his people cry out defeated, Jehovah, we need you to hear us. When we turn around and we realize that we are defeated because we've turned our backs on you, then hear in heaven and forgive us. Verse 35. When heaven is shut up because there is, and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. So when your people are hungry and the land is desolate, and the reason is we've sinned against you. You know this happens in Israel's history on more than one occasion, where there is a famine and a drought... Because the people are wicked. And he says, when that happens, and then we begin to realize, and we turn again, and we repent, and we pray toward this place, here in heaven, and forgive, and grant rain on your land, because it's your land. And you've given it to us as our inheritance, when we talked about keeping your word. So, when we are in those desperate straits, hear us. Verse 37, if there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, only, for you you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. So this is a, a little bit broader, isn't it? He just says when when pretty much anything happens, Okay, when there's a famine or a pestilence or there's some, some locust or there's a disease or there's a plague or there's an army that's coming, whatever it may be, When people are in trouble, whether that's all the people, do you notice he makes that distinction, whether that's the whole nation or whether that's just each individual person who's crying out? Here in heaven and help them and act and and forgive and give them according to what they deserve because you know their hearts. We'll talk about that more in a minute. And so that we can fear you all the days of our lives. So over and over again, Jehovah, hear, here. Verse 41, I want you to notice this. This is an interesting and important idea. Verse 41, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house here in heaven in your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you and do your, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So God, hear the foreigner too. The foreigner who doesn't really have a right to the temple, who doesn't have a right to the land. Solomon foresees a day when they're going to hear about Jehovah God and want to come worship him. And he says, when he prays towards you, when he prays toward this temple, hear him too, because that's what the temple means. The temple means God hears. Even this glimpse of something greater that God's going to involve the Gentiles in. Uh, ...that Solomon seems to have here. So, Jehovah hears his people. That's the great question we have. We we offer a lot of words to God, say a lot of prayers. We think a lot about God. we, We try to study God's word. And the question is always, does God hear? Is God listening? Is God paying attention? And the temple was a great visual symbol of the fact that God hears... That when they prayed toward this place, they were praying and talking directly to God. It's much like the practice that the ancients had of looking up when they prayed. They prayed toward heaven because that's where God is. So they're talking to God. And when you talk to somebody, you're going to face where they are, right? You want to look at them. And so they would pray up. Or in this case, they would pray toward the temple. This is where Jehovah is. And and that visual symbol says, I have a place to which I'm looking. It is particularly powerful in Solomon's wording, where he goes through all these different scenarios where we might need to pray to God. And I think the point of all of these scenarios that Solomon is trying to say is that there is no situation so desperate that God won't hear us. He seems to be going to the extremes. When things are so bad that the armies are are killing us, that the people are dying of starvation, That we have these pestilences and plagues. That we're all tormented, each in our own heart, with different needs that we have. There is no situation in which God says, sorry, the temple is closed today. Instead, God is always willing to hear. So, we may not have a temple today, but we need to pray with that same confidence that God hears us. That the Jews would have had that they would have been certain, of course God hears us. This is God's temple. We don't have the temple, but we do have assurances from God that he hears. Jesus says, this is talking about Jesus' parable, actually, in Luke 18 and verse 1. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. That's the temptation for us, is that sometimes when we pray and we don't immediately see some action from God, that we begin to lose heart and stop praying. And so Jesus tells this parable about the woman who is trying, the widow who's trying to get justice from the judge. And the point of the parable, Luke says, is that we ought always to pray. We ought to keep coming back, trusting that God is hearing us and that he'll act in his time. Mark 11 and verse 23, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. I underline the idea of not doubting in his heart because the focus there is that we need to believe that God hears us. We need to be certain that God is listening. And of course, that God's going to act because we have that relationship with him. Now, it may be that we need to turn again, like the people here, and repent, change some things we've been doing, and approach God in a more humble way. That's certainly a part of what Solomon is praying. But at the end of the day, we can be certain that Jehovah hears his people. That's one of the facts about God. That's what the temple teaches us about God. The third thing I want us to see is that Jehovah knows our hearts. Look again at verse 37 with me. 1 Kings 8 and verse 37. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, then here in heaven your dwelling place, and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only, know the hearts of all the children of mankind. Render to each according to his heart. Because you know his heart. And I love the fact that he says, their prayers are going to spring out of their hearts. In verse uh, 38, each knowing the affliction of his own heart. You know, we each have our own battles that are internal. And even in the era of the temple, there was the expectation that we're going to pour out our hearts to God. Think about the Psalms and how often David takes all his struggles, all the internal mess that's going on in him, and he just dumps it out to God. And he prays to God and asks for God's help. And in the same way, he is saying that's where our prayers originate, whether as a nation or as individuals, and that's what the temple is about. It's about having a time and a place where our hearts can be poured out before God. But I want you to notice that he says, God knows your hearts. God knows all of our hearts, and so he knows what is really going on when we pray. There is an implication here that there is more to prayer and more to approaching God than just outward formalities. It is not just about, I said the right words, now God has to act. And I want you to see this, how many of the times the things Solomon says are internal. Look in verse 47. In verse 47, he says, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they've been carried captive. In verse 48, if they repent with all their mind and with all their heart. You see, when God knows the heart, then he knows whether repentance is sincere. So repentance is not just, well, I guess I got to say these words now and God will make this all go away. There would be a real temptation to that when you're in a desperate situation. There's an army coming, and you say, well, what are the words we say to get God to make all this go away? You know, isn't there a formula somewhere? Don't don't the priest, don't you guys say something or offer some sacrifice or something, and then God will be on our team again? And what the temple shows us, and what this fact about Jehovah shows us, is that there is no formula to God. God is not a prescription that you just do this, and you take this, and then everything works out. Relating to God is always going to be a heart matter because Jehovah knows our hearts. He is not a formula. And it appears to me that this was an especially common thought in the ancient world. That people would think that Jehovah or any God was approached by a formula. You remember Jesus talking about vain repetitions that the pagans offer. Where if you just say the words enough times, then God has to act. Whatever God that might be that the pagans are talking about there. Whatever God it is, you just annoy them into action. When you say it enough, something has to happen. That's not Jehovah God. We cannot simply say the right words and get forgiveness. We have to mean it because Jehovah knows our hearts. And so the temple shows us, surprisingly, that knowing God is not about knowing a formula. It's something that comes from within. And the last thing I want us to see is that Jehovah forgives. Look in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46. Verse 46 It says, If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly, If they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive, and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you, and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. So he says specifically in verse 46, there is no one who doesn't sin. And in this text, as well as in a lot of the prayer of Solomon already, you see that that sin leads to God's anger and to God's judgment. And so there is a time when God might shut up the heavens and keep the rain from the people. And now there is a time when God might allow them even to be taken captive into a foreign land. But what Solomon prays then is, if they repent in the land where you've taken them, forgive them, give them compassion in the sight of their captors in that situation... Now, I want you to notice how many times this idea of forgiveness comes up because over and over again he prays this. Verse 30, listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Verse 34, hear in heaven and forgive. Verse 36, then hear in heaven and forgive. Verse 39, then hear in heaven, your dwelling place and forgive. This is our deepest need. From God, Nothing else comes close to it. We need forgiveness. And the temple was a visual symbol of the forgiveness of God. I want you to understand what I mean by that. What I mean is, it is a symbol that God is willing to dwell in the midst of a sinful people. How is that possible? How can God live in a temple situated in the middle of Israel? who are a wicked people. The only way that's possible is if God is willing to forgive. This is God's house, and yet the people do not pollute it because God is willing to forgive them. And Much of the law is about that idea. The law of Moses is about how can God live among the people and how can the people live among God? Because there has to be a purification of the people. There has to be a forgiveness of sin in order for that to happen. But God is still there. And the temple says God is still there because God forgives. I said a moment ago, this is our deepest need from God. I want to remind you, Jesus teaches us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts. Sometimes we focus so much on needing to forgive, and that's an important teaching, that we forget that he is saying here, we need to be praying, and I believe daily, for forgiveness because we need God's forgiveness. There is no other way for us to get forgiveness from, than from God. So I want to encourage you as you think about that, don't ever let that become trite in your praying. I think sometimes we can get one of those phrases and forgive us of our sins that just sort of becomes... A tacit acknowledgement. You know, forgive us our sins, forgive us our sins. This is something where Solomon is teaching us to grieve over sin and really consider whether we need to change our lives completely and turn things around and to be sorry for our sin. And then we come and ask God for forgiveness. And God is willing to hear and willing to forgive. So, forgiveness then points us to the time when Jesus is going to come and God will forgive all sins through the sacrifice of his son, a once for all offering. So when Solomon is done with this prayer, he blesses the people. Look down in verse 57 with me. 1 Kings 8 and verse 57. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine with which I have pleaded before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night, and may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day requires, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and his commandments as, a, as at this day. Notice how he says, let your heart be true to the people. Let us be true to God, because God knows our hearts. He's going to know how we're going to respond to this. And one more thing we need to say, as, as Solomon then offers these sacrifices in staggering numbers, that we have an inkling of the fact that God approves of what we just read and studied. 1 Kings chapter 9 and verse 1. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. That's talking about the time when God asked him, ask, what shall I give you? And he asked for wisdom. Verse 3. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. So he is saying, God is saying, I I hear what you asked, and I will hear in heaven when you pray toward this place. So I am not saying, as as I teach this lesson, that we still worship in a temple. I am saying that all the things that the temple was a visual symbol of that Jehovah keeps his word, that Jehovah hears his people, that Jehovah knows our hearts and that Jehovah forgives, all of these that are wrapped up in the temple, all those things are still true. All those things are true today, even though there is no visible symbol of this in the temple. And somehow, although I admit that this is a great mystery, it's something that I couldn't really tease out this week, somehow Christians are the temple of God. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, a place in which God dwells. That the local church is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that God lives among us. Not our building, of course. We're not talking about a physical building. We're talking about people. And in some way, the people of God are still proof that Jehovah keeps his word and that Jehovah hears us and that Jehovah knows our heart and that Jehovah forgives. We are still a visible symbol that God is active in the same way. So would you pray with me? Our Father, we ask you to keep your word to us, to hear us when we call, especially when we are in desperate situations. We ask you to test and search our hearts. And Father, we ask you to forgive us and to continue to live among us. We ask that you'll hear in heaven and forgive. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We'll be dismissed for our classes. Thank you.